Hi, everyone, and welcome to Murder and Merlot. We are a true crime book club podcast. I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Michelle. How's it going, Michelle? Oh, it's pretty good. No complaints. No complaints other than, I guess, the snow. Snow. My kids got sunburned yesterday, and they had snow boots on today. Yep. Fuck, I Same love here. Alberta. <laughs> yep, I, I got burned pretty bad. I was outside for like 20 minutes, and now I look outside my window, and it's like snowing loony sized snowflakes like what the hell is happening yeah however um there's been so many fires in our county mm. in the last week that we need this moisture so it can just keep coming that's true my husband was <laughs> a volunteer firefighter at one of them the other day really? randomly yeah he was it was at one of his building sites <laughs> so weird yeah so i guess the moisture is good man yep, we are we, need it. we are so Canadian and Albertan <laughs> farmers, man. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get that weather talk it. in every episode. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, well, today is part four of the Manson family murders. And I never thought that I would do a part four of anything, but if there ever was a case to do it, this would be the case. So it makes sense. Uh, it's this one. It it's is definitely this one. one. Yeah. So I'm excited. And nervous and it's gonna be fun it'll, it'll be fine yeah i'm excited to kind of wrap everything up and talk about all the other weird things lots of weird things i hope it all makes sense i kind of just word vomited onto this um, paper <laughs> so we will see how it goes <laughs> it's fine it's fine uh before we dive into that though we will chat about our favorite response from our last fluff and stuff question which was, of course, what is the strangest nickname you have ever received? Yeah. So from Instagram, um, and this one just made me laugh because not only does she use my nickname in it, but she also threatens me. So I kind of <laughs> love it. But I actually do have permission to use the quote. So it's fine. Mm -hmm. um, it says, quote, if you ever repeat this, Mickey, I know where you live. Oh. My uncles and older cousins used to call me Jody Coyote. They still howl like wolves when they see me, like I'm not in my 30s and thoroughly over it. <laughs> I love that, especially because, of course, my husband's nickname is Wiley Coyote, so I get it. <laughs> yes, and that's the only way people will remember his name, especially old people. They all call him Riley, but if you tell him it's Wiley Coyote, then they're like, oh, okay, I got it. So, yeah, it's very common. <laughs> Okay, so funny story, today even, somehow we got onto the topic of, oh, we're watching Parks and Rec, and mm. one guy's last name is Wyatt, and Des looks at me and starts laughing, and he's like, Wyatt, and I was like, what's wrong with you? What's happening? <laughs> he's like, you know, um, um, Tara's husband, so he not only <laughs> forgot your husband's name, but he also forgot your name, Oh, thanks. and I was like, um, Tara's husband is Wiley. <laughs> like Wiley Coyote, <laughs> not Wyatt. And then he's like, "Oh, oh, damn Fuck. it! <laughs> I fucked up." <laughs> oh, Des. Nice try, Des. <laughs> oh, uh, <fuck. laughs> I love it. <laughs> I don't even know why he was like thinking that that was funny. Like, <laughs> yeah, why was that funny in the first place? Why it is funny that it would be Wiley? Like, I don't even understand, but you know. Yeah, yeah. Husband for you. Who knows? Who knows what's happening up inside their brains, really? 
most of the time, I don't even want to know. <laughs> mm, definitely don't. My favorite response came from Instagram from Haley Fisher too. And she just simply said, shapeshifter. And this is my favorite response because my brother gave her that nickname when we were in like high school because she's got red hair and so she's a ginger. And for some reason that makes her a shapeshifter, which I don't quite understand the logic. I don't remember how he got to that, but it was just, he didn't trust her because she was a shapeshifter and that just stuck. And her name in my phone is still shapeshifter. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I have never thought of a redhead as a shapeshifter. No. I've heard them called all sorts of like demon children and stuff, but. Mm -hmm. But that's a new one. So you can thank my brother for that. Apparently he just does yeah. not trust redheads. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I think that says more about him. Than I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> He's a unique individual. That's all I'll say. Yes. Yeah. But that's all I have for the top of the show, so I figure we should probably dive into this episode. Let's do the things. Mm -hmm. All right, friends. Grab your glass and get cozy. Let's talk about murder. Tink, tink. <laughs> oh, man. Part four. It's going to get weird up in here. And I know it's already been weird, but we're about to branch off into all kinds of conspiracy theories, other related murders and attempted murders, and just so much more. And I'm just, I'm very excited. Just going to say. Me too. In the last episode, we went all in on the trial and convictions of Charles Manson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten. It was suspected that the appeals and the retrials for them would take two to five years, but surprisingly, it took less than one which we will talk about later on, but it doesn't simply just end there. Um, we have, no, not at all. <laughs> Definitely not. We have to first find out what happened to the remaining family members. So of course, there was the other key player in the Tate-LaBianca murders, which was Charles Tex Watson. He obviously had not been tried with the others as his extradition was delayed for nine months. Finally, he was returned to California on September 11th, 1970, after the Supreme Court refused to grant him further stay. Upon his return, he was actually brought into the courtroom during the Tate-LaBianca trial. Attorney Fritz Gerald thought it would somehow be helpful to their defense, not sure really what he was trying to accomplish here, but he had Watson be seated among the spectators and asked Danny DiCarlo to identify him. He easily pointed out Tex, and he was asked to stand up and state his name. He stood up after being told to by the bailiff, but he didn't say anything. The jury could now get a good look at the missing suspect they had heard so much about. They expected a wild-eyed monster, but instead he appeared to be a clean-cut college kid. He had lost about 30 pounds while in custody and appeared to be about 20 years old, rather than 25. His presence in the courtroom convinced everyone that he would not be an instigator of seven murders. Again, not sure what the defense's plan was here, because before seeing Tex, many could have said that he was the mastermind behind it all, and this would cast doubt on the prosecution's case against Charlie. But this had the opposite effect. Way to go, guys. Good call there. <laughs> After the extradition, Tex had been acting quite strange. He stopped speaking entirely and would stare off into space for hours and then suddenly throw himself into the cell wall. 
other inmates in his cell block had to create a petition against him because of how unsanitary his cell became. He was placed into restraints, so he stopped eating as well. And even though he was being force-fed, he dropped down to 110 pounds. And this dude was six foot two. And I'm five foot one and a half, and I'm like 125 pounds. So that's insane. That's a lot. Like, he was just a rack of bones. Yeah, Skeletor, man. Mm-hmm. There had been evidence that he was faking some of his symptoms, but his attorney had the court appoint three psychiatrists to examine him. They all had slightly different opinions. However, they agreed that Watson was rapidly reverting to a fetal state, and if continued, it could be fatal. He was found incompetent to stand trial and was committed to a state hospital for treatment. After only three days, he started to eat again, and within one month, it was noted that he was no longer displaying any abnormal behavior other than his silence. With further testing, it was determined that the results were inconsistent with any mental illness. So basically, he had been faking it all, and he was deemed competent to stand trial. All of this information would be quite useful to Bugliosi later when he would prosecute Tex, as he suspected that he would still attempt to plead insanity during his trial. I mean, you got to give him some credit for his dedication, at least. I was just going to say that. Like, he like, he went there. He did the thing. <laughs> I mean, I personally like food way too much to just stop eating and mm-hmm. drop that much weight. And I like food and I like to talk, so I don't think I could commit to that. <laughs> yeah. 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 So props to you. I don't know. <laughs> I guess. Congratulations, I guess. Tex. Yeah. You know, wacko. <laughs> His trial began in August 1971, and although Bugliosi was informed that Tex intended to take the stand and confess, he wasn't going to rely on that and prepared a strong case. He had to prove that although he was under the control of Charles Manson, he was still independent enough that he was legally responsible for his actions. If he was convicted, then there would be a sanity trial in order to determine if he was sane or insane at the time of the murders. In order to prove that Watson was in full control of his mental capacities and that he was aware that what he was doing was wrong in the eyes of society, Bugliosi would use evidence such as him cutting the telephone wires, telling Linda to wipe the knives of fingerprints, and using an alias when questioned by authorities. In court, he tried to pull off a college boy image with short hair and he was dressed very nicely. But there was still something about him that was very strange. His eyes were glassy, he wouldn't focus, he never reacted to testimony, and his mouth was always slightly opened. When he took the stand, he played the part of being Manson's slave, admitted to stabbing or shooting six of the victims, all except for Sharon Tate, and any premeditation was directed back to Manson or the girls. His facade was worn down by the prosecution's cross-examination, though. He was caught off guard and he would forget he was supposed to be playing an idiot. He went on to admit that he did stab Sharon Tate as well, and that he didn't consider them to be people at the time, just blobs. He even smiled when describing the Tate victims as running around like chickens with their heads cut off. A quote from Vincent Bugliosi, I tore to shreds his story that he was simply an unthinking zombie programmed by Charles Manson, as well as cast considerable doubt on his claim that he now felt remorse for what he had done. Watson's trial also revealed Manson's direct orders for the Tate murders. 
Tex had been handed a gun and a knife and was instructed to go to Terry Melcher's old residence and kill everyone inside and make it as gruesome as possible. Manson also mentioned something about movie stars living there as well. He also admitted that he already had a knife when he entered the LaBianca home as well. In the end, on October 12, 1971, the jury found Charles Tex Watson guilty of seven counts of first-degree murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder. It only took two and a half hours for the jury to decide that he was sane, and then, after the penalty trial, it only took six hours for them to return with a verdict of death. In regards to the Gary Hinman murder, Susan Atkins was on trial again and pleaded guilty. She was sentenced to life imprisonment. There were separate trials for Charles Manson, Bruce Davis, and Steve Grogan for the Gary Hinman and Donald Shorty Shea murders. The difficult aspect of Shorty's case was that his body had not been discovered. Regardless, each defendant was found guilty on all counts. Manson and Davis received a sentence of life imprisonment, and as for Clem, the jury voted for the death penalty. The judge, however, disagreed and said, quote, Grogan was too stupid and too hopped up on drugs to decide anything on his own, end quote, and declared that it was Manson who was the one who decided who lived and who died. So with this, he reduced the sentence to life imprisonment. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> Good, eloquent choice of words there, Judge. <laughs> you're a dumbass. Yeah. And you're high all the time. Yes. So it wouldn't be right for me to send you to death because you're just too damn dumb. Because <laughs> you're an idiot. Yeah. All right. But you can stay in jail for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. As for Bobby Beausoleil, another key player in the Gary Hinman murder, his original trial resulted in a hung jury, so a new trial had to be arranged. On April 18, 1970, he was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. Twelve years after the murder, Beausoleil came out with the story that the killing was actually due to a drug deal gone wrong. He claimed Hinman provided the straight Satans with a bad batch of drugs, and they were the ones who actually had sent him to his home to collect their money back but there was no mention from any other family members to support this theory. I have to wonder if they just like thought while sitting in their cells, maybe, yeah. maybe they'll just tell people this. Yeah. You know what? We're going to go with this now. We haven't had attention in a little while, so <laughs> yeah, we should like put the spotlight back on us. Yeah. Let's spice things up a little bit. In the case of Barbara Hoyt's attempted murder, the result was not too satisfying. Four out of the five involved only served 90 days in the county jail, and the fifth got off entirely. The evidence was weak against the defendants, and it was too much of a bother to fly in witnesses from Hawaii. So instead, a deal was made between the DA's office, the LAPD, and the defense attorneys. The defendants pleaded no contest to one count of conspiracy to dissuade a witness from testifying, and the charge was reduced from a felony to a misdemeanor. Squeaky, Clem, Gypsy, and Dennis Rice were sentenced to 90 days, but they had already served 15, so they were all out in only 75 days. The fifth defendant, Ruth Ann Morehouse, was the one who had actually given Barbara the LSD-laced hamburger, but she had skipped town while out on bail and never showed back up for the sentencing. It was known that she was living in Nevada, but it was decided that it would be too much trouble to extradite her. They're just like, yeah, we're tired. 
of this. And I don't want to chase her down. Right. So I really don't think she's going to be a danger to anybody in the future. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Because it's fine. The Manson family, they're, they're fine. They're safe. They should definitely be out they're walking around. Fine. Ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Although Barbara was able to escape with her life, there were many other suspicious deaths that could be related to the Manson family. I'm going to go through a large number of them quite quickly, and I arranged them by date because it seemed to be the easiest way to organize all this chaos. Um, I will also include the murders that we are already familiar with just to put the timeline into perspective. So we will start in October of 1968, when the bodies of two women were found near Ukiah, California. I probably said that wrong. I'm sorry. Clinda Delaney and Nancy Warren were beaten then strangled to death with leather thongs. Clinda had apparently been eight months pregnant, just like Sharon Tate. It has been connected to the family as they, of course, used a leather thong in the LaBianca murders, and there had been many family members in that area at the time. Just two days later, Manson suddenly moved the family from Spawn Ranch to Barker Ranch. Although the Mendocino County Sheriff's Office believes there is a link, they don't have any concrete evidence, so the murders remain unsolved. December 30th, 1968, 17-year-old Marina Habe was abducted outside of her home in West Hollywood. Her body was found two days later on New Year's Day in some underbrush off of Mulholland Drive. She was fully dressed, her throat was slashed and she was stabbed multiple times in the chest and had multiple contusions to the face. And she also had been garroted, which is just Ooh, absolutely awful. brutal. Marina was the daughter of writer Hans Habe and actress Eloise Hart. It was rumored that Marina was acquainted with one or more of the family members. Her murder is still, of course, unsolved. May 27, 1969, Darwin Scott was brutally attacked and stabbed to death in his apartment. He had been stabbed 19 times and had been pinned to the floor with a butcher knife. This happened in Kentucky, however, so how was it connected to the family? The 64-year-old was the brother of Colonel Scott, who was believed to be Charles Manson's father. Colonel had died in 1954 of cirrhosis of the liver, so perhaps Manson went, off, went after his brother as he was the closest relation. At least that's what I'm just throwing out there. Yes. Who knows? It's hard to say. It didn't seem like Darwin was squeaky clean himself either, so it could have been a personal enemy as well. Also interesting... There have been a lot of rumors about Charles Manson's father being black, and that's why he has so much hate for them. Um, I even read that Colonel was black. However, I did some digging, and I found his death certificate, and the color or race was marked with a W. So I feel like I was a real detective there. Wow. Yeah. How's that for a deep dive? What? What hole in the internet did you fall into? <laughs> I think it was on findagrave.com, actually. It was pretty easy. Beautiful. Yeah. Interesting. Love findagrave.com. I know. July 1st, 1969 was when Bernard Lotsapapa Crow had been shot in the stomach and left for dead by Manson. Of course, we know that he survived as he testified in the Tate-LaBianca trial. July 17th, 1969 16-year-old Mark Waltz left his parents' home and was planning on hitchhiking his way to Santa Monica Pier to go fishing. 
He apparently made it to his destination as his fishing rod was found on the pier, but he was missing. His body was later found off of Topanga Canyon Boulevard, which is a short distance from Mulholland. His face and head were badly bruised, and he had been shot three times in the chest by a 22 caliber gun. Mark was known to hang around Spawn Ranch on occasion, and his brother was convinced that Manson was responsible. He even called Manson and told him he was going to kill him for what he did. Danny DiCarlo was asked about the situation, however, and he was certain that the family wasn't responsible. Otherwise, he would have heard about it. The murder remains unsolved. And I'm not even like halfway done here with these. No. And <laughs> it's like, ridiculous. We know how much we like unsolved murders. Oh, right, exactly. July 27, 1969, Gary Hinman was murdered inside of his Topanga Canyon home. August 9th, 1969 was the night of the Tate murders, which of course included Sharon Tate, Abigail Folger, Wojciech Frykowski, Jay Sebring, and Stephen Parent. The next night, on August 10th, 1969, Lino and Rosemary LaBianca were murdered inside of their Las Villas home. August 26, 1969, Donald Shorty Shea, a cowboy at Spawn Ranch, was murdered by the family. And we have heard a bit about his murder, but I wanted to do some more digging on this one to see if I could find out what really happened. Because we had said, like, will we ever know the true story behind it all, right? Yeah. So, from what I've read... There are kind of two stories that lead up to Shorty's death. First of all, Shorty did not like the family and was known as Manson's rival. He didn't like them staying at Spawn's ranch and would apparently tell George that they shouldn't be there. Well, we all know that Squeaky was George's eyes, but she was also Manson's ears. So I believe that she was partially responsible for getting this information back to Charlie. I also read that Charlie believed it was Shorty that reported them for car theft which led to the Spawn Ranch raid, and that is when he decided to have him killed. Apparently, what went down was Manson told Bruce Davis, Tex Watson, and Clem to ask Shorty for a ride to get some car parts on the ranch. While driving, Clem hit him over the head with a pipe wrench, and Watson stabbed him. They then took Shay out of the car and over a hill where they continued to stab and torture him to death. Bruce Davis testified to all of this while basically saying he didn't have anything to do with it, and when Manson handed him a machete to cut off his head, he didn't have the guts to even break the skin. I don't know about that, Bruce, but I know you're just trying to cover your own ass. (laughs) So I don't know exactly who was the one that cut off Shorty's head. However, during the trial for the murder, Manson exclaimed, I enter a plea of guilty. I chopped off Shorty's head. Regardless, it was rumored that Shorty was dismembered into nine pieces and Clem buried him in the desert. And I always believed that his remains were never found, but they were. Yes, I just actually recently read this. It blew my mind because I had written like, and they were never found. (laughs) And then I kept like digging and I'm like, oh shit, they were found. So in December, 1977, Clem agreed to help locate the body by drawing a map to the location. Shorty's skeletal remains were found, and according to the autopsy report, his body suffered multiple stab and chopping wounds to the chest and blunt force trauma to the head. So that's what I know about Shorty Shay's death. November 5th, 1969, John Zero Hot was found dead in his Venice Beach home after apparently playing Russian roulette by himself. You know the story. 
it was ruled a suicide, even though there is so much evidence that says otherwise. And, you know, family members that say otherwise. Mm-hmm. November 16th, 1969, the body of a young woman, likely around 20 years old, was found dumped over an embankment at Mulholland, almost in the exact spot that Marina Habe's body was discovered. She was brunette, five foot nine, weighing 115 pounds, and she was stabbed 157 times in the chest and throat. Brutal. What? Oh my God. One of the ranch hands at Spawn remembered seeing the girl with the family at the ranch. They thought that her name was Sherry, but they were not certain. She was known by either Sherry Doe or Jane Doe 59 for many years. However, in June 2015, her identity was finally discovered. This was 19-year-old Reet Jervitson. Her older sister was contacted by some friends that had been searching through the National Missing and Unidentified Person System when they came across a familiar face. The older sister, Anne, submitted her DNA for comparison, and this confirmed her identity. She had apparently been living at the ranch and was dating Zero. It was suspected that she was present when Zero died, or she may have even been killed prior to that. Stabbed 157 times. Mm -hmm. That's madness. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, it's insane. And let me tell you, I had quite the journey with this story because in almost everywhere that I read, this was still unsolved. And like, well, obviously it's still unsolved, but like her identity was not known. And so I was like digging, digging. I had the whole thing written out how she's never been identified and blah, blah, blah. And then I found her identity and I was like, oh my God, I, I solved it. I had solved the case. <laughs> I am the greatest detective in the world. <laughs> yep. But I didn't because it is still obviously unsolved, but I was so excited that I could put a name to this Jane Doe. <laughs> yes. November 21st, 1969, the bodies of 15-year-old James Sharp and 19-year-old Doreen Gall were found in a downtown Los Angeles alley. They had each been stabbed over 50 times at a different location, actually near the LaBianca's home, and then the bodies were dumped there. The two were part of a Scientologist group known as The Process. Manson had been involved with The Process during his early years in prison and took some of their ideologies for his own teachings. Bruce Davis, who was also an ex-Scientologist, apparently used to date Doreen. The two had also visited Spawn Ranch multiple times the previous summer. Hmm. Too many coincidences. There's, uh, and they all relate back to Spawn Ranch. Like, that place I know. was just bad vibes, apparently. Like, if you go to Spawn Ranch, you don't that's have a- cool, really. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. It's like, bad things are going to happen. <laughs> if you don't die you'll definitely get an std so just beware <laughs> can be on their sign <laughs> yes oh you should have to sign a waiver as soon as you walk on the property yeah. amazing <laughs> december 1st 1969 we are going international former family member and husband of sandra good joel Pugh was found dead inside a London hotel room. He was found undressed with only a sheet covering the lower half of his body. His throat was slit twice, his forehead was bruised, and his wrists had been slashed. 
There was also some writing left on the mirror and some type of drawing. The coroner determined no wound not incapable of being self-inflicted. So he concluded that the man took his own life while the balance of his mind was disturbed. <laughs> yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Because that is how you would commit suicide, right? Yeah. I mean, would you start with your wrists and then go to your neck? Right, exactly. How do you... And then you punch yourself in the forehead or like, how does yeah, that there's work? There's a lot of things that make this not seem suicide-like, but what do yes. I know? And at what point did he write on the mirror? When did he got all That's covered up in bed? Like, I have, I have some questions. Yeah. And no one made note of what the writing on the mirror had said, and no one checked around for prints. It likely would have never been connected to the family if a letter wasn't found in Sandra's cell that said, quote, I would not want what happened to Joel to happen to me, end quote. Although he was all the way across the pond and seemingly very far away from the family, there was one person who recently made a trip to that area, Manson's right-hand man, Bruce Davis. Dun, dun, dun. Crazy, right? Mind-blowing. Insane. I have said that exact phrase like 50 times while <laughs> recording these episodes. <laughs> March 1970, Paul Watkins was gearing up to take the witness stand against Manson, and he almost didn't get to do so. One night, he was pulled out of his burning Volkswagen camper and was rushed to the hospital with second-degree burns covering his face, arms, and back. He was unsure how the fire was started and thought maybe he fell asleep with a candle or a joint still lit in his camper. However, just three days prior to the fire, there was a rumor circulating that Watkins was going to be killed by the family. It's pretty, like, nonchalant of him. He's like, oh, yeah, it was probably just my joint or my candle. But yeah, it's like, it's I'm fine. i in, like, the biggest murder trial in the country in, it's you know, a few days. Totally unrelated. Not connected. Not no. Connected. <laughs> Definitely just got high and forgot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that witness survived, but another witness suddenly passed away on August 7th, 1970. Randy Starr, a former Spawn ranch hand, died in hospital from an undetermined illness. No autopsy was performed in the beginning until Vincent Bugliosi ordered one. It was determined that Starr had simply died of natural causes resulting from an ear infection. So... Probably not related to the family, but still very interesting that it happened right before he was supposed to testify. And like, what kind of complications from an ear infection can kill you? Yeah, no, that's very true. I Bad still feel like, infection. <laughs> right. I feel like there's more to it. Just I saying. Too. I've been hospitalized for ear infections for really bad ones. Mm -hmm. And I'm still here. So. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm suspicious. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The next one has been brought up a few times, but we haven't really dived into it yet. November 28, 1970, Ronald Hughes, Leslie Van Houten's defense attorney, suddenly disappears while out on a camping trip. A body was discovered on March 29, 1971, which happened to be the same day that the Manson defendants all received the death penalty verdict, which is like, I don't know if that's coincidence or karma, but I think it's beautiful. Yes. Through dental x-rays, the body was positively identified as Hughes. He had apparently been found face down in a pool of water with his head and shoulder wedged under a large rock. 
One arm was almost completely severed at the shoulder, and there were large open areas in the chest and back. However, other than that, there were no obvious signs of foul play. The autopsy report concluded, nature of death, undetermined. Cause of death, undetermined. Bugliosi was completely unsatisfied with these findings and requested further investigation, but it was denied since there was no evidence of foul play, so such investigation would be unnecessary. Later on, but still during the trial, a film was being made about the Manson family by Lawrence Merrick, who happened to be a former acting coach of Sharon Tate's. Sandra Good told Merrick, Hughes was the first in the retaliation murders. So straight from the horse's mouth. Exactly. How is that not suspicious? How is there no evidence of foul play? Like, it's suspicious enough that their lawyer went missing during this huge, massive trial. Exactly. And when Manson was disagreeing with what he was saying and literally threatening their lives because he didn't like what was happening. Like, Mm -hmm. (sighs) next on my list happens to be Lawrence Merrick. As I just mentioned, he was known for creating a documentary about the family, which was called Manson, and he previously worked with Sharon Tate. On January 26, 1977, he was shot in the back of the head while in the parking lot of his acting school. The case remained unsolved for a few years, and many were suspicious of the Manson family. However, in October 1981, someone confessed to it. Dennis Magnano, 35, of San Jose, was found not guilty by reason of insanity and committed to a mental hospital. An unemployed wannabe actor and singer with a long history of psychiatric problems believed that during his audition, black magic spells were cast upon him that later caused him problems. So, unrelated to the family, however, is just a bizarre coincidence that I wanted to include. Strange. <laughs> hmm It's like, you know, those, like cursed films and stuff like anybody working on like like the the exorcist yeah or even like rosemary's baby who was directed by roman polanski i'm pretty sure that's considered a cursed film as well but like yeah so it's like anybody working on the set or played a role like they're all cursed now i feel like that's what happens with a family member like just on ranch any connection to the family you're just cursed forever yeah Although Ronnie Howard isn't really listed anywhere as being targeted for attempted murder, I think she deserves to be on the list as well. I mentioned at some point Roman Polanski had offered a reward of $25,000 for information about the murders. That money ended up being divided between three people. Ronnie Howard and Virginia Graham each received $12,000, and little Stephen, the boy who found the murder weapon, received $1,000, which made my heart so happy. I I love that. I know. However, Ronnie was struggling after the whole Manson case. She tried working as a waitress, but she would be harassed for being a snitch. She was beaten up several times while on her way home from work, and someone had even shot through her apartment window, missing her head by only a few inches. She later told reports that she wished she would have kept her mouth shut in the first place. Oh, poor lady. Mm-hmm. Like, you did, the, like, you did the right thing. I just try to live her life. She served her time. Mm-hmm. And she's getting shot at. Yep, literally. (laughs) And lastly, I will discuss Lynette Squeaky Fromey. And no, she was not murdered or almost murdered. She was just involved in so much shit that I'm dedicating a little section entirely to her. (laughs) So, Squeaky. 
Can you believe that even after her leader was locked away, she didn't simply assimilate back into normal society? What? She didn't? Right? No, of course you can, because we all know that she was a whole nother level of crazy. She never denounced Manson, and since he was moved to Folsom Prison, Squeaky, along with Sandra Good, moved to Sacramento to be near him. It didn't take them long to get mixed up with another murder trial. While in prison, Manson had an uneasy relationship with the Aryan Brotherhood, and although he didn't join their gang, Manson gave the Aryans access to his women. Once a pimp, always a pimp. Even behind bars. <laughs> yeah. So in 1972, Squeaky had been with these two Aryan brothers, and they lived with the Willett family. This consisted of husband and wife, James and Lauren Willett, and their eight-month-old daughter, Heidi. Apparently, the two men were convinced that the couple were going to report them to authorities for a series of robberies. They forced James to dig his own grave, then shot and decapitated him. His body was later discovered in a shallow grave because his hand was still sticking out of the ground. Could you imagine finding that while out on a walk? Just saying. No, no thanks. I mean, it's usually like a shoe that you find, but right. just somebody's hand? No, no just thanks. Hate. The police tracked his car back to the home where the family members were still living. While searching the house, they found Lauren's body buried in the basement, and she too had died by gunshot. The family explained that she had done that to herself, playing Russian roulette. Classic. What? I haven't heard that one before. This keeps happening. <laughs> right? I did also read another version where one of the brothers were demonstrating the dangers of firearms while playing a form of Russian roulette where he spun the cylinder, shot at his own head, and then pointed the gun at Lauren, and then the gun went off, which was, of course, an accident. But regardless, Naturally. the two Willets lost their lives. Fortunately, however, the baby was unharmed. So that's, that's good news. Yay. Good news all around. Well, not all around, but for the <laughs> not all around, just in one regard. <laughs> yes. There is another crazy theory about this case, however. It was said that the two victims were going to inform authorities about some robberies, but some believe it was actually in regards to another Manson murder, the murder of Ronald Hughes. Just before the defense attorney went missing, he had received a ride from a James and a Lauren to some hot springs. Although the last names given were different, it's still a possibility that this was the Willett couple, but it has never been proven. Hmm. Four people involved were convicted of the murders, but Squeaky was not one of them. She had been held in custody for two and a half months, but was never charged. After her release, she reunited with Sandra Good and became even more devoted to Manson's religion. And spoiler, the madness continues. They started wearing color-coordinated robes and went by the names Red and Blue. Lynette being red in honor of the California Redwoods and Sandra being blue in honor of the ocean. These nicknames had previously been given by Manson. On September 15, 1975, decked out in her red robe, Squeaky went to Sacramento's Capitol Park to talk to President Gerald Ford about the current state of the California Redwoods as he would be giving a speech that day. Under her robe, however, she was carrying a semi-auto Colt 45, because how else would you get your point across about the trees? Naturally. <laughs> Squeaky makes her way through the crowd and gets within arm's length away from the president and pulls her weapon. 
Those around her heard a click, but the gun didn't fire. The magazine had four bullets inside, but there were none in the chamber. She was quickly restrained by a Secret Service agent, and she could be heard on camera saying it didn't go off. She was then, of course, taken into custody, charged, and eventually convicted of the attempted assassination of the president. This trial, too, was a circus. She refused to cooperate with her defense, and when one attorney recommended severe punishment because she was full of hate and violence, she threw an apple at his face, knocking off his glasses. Wow. Mm-hmm. Just going to prove that point right away. Like, just stop putting things on their table. I know. Like, don't, don't give, give them, them anything. Anything. Like, how have you not learned? Right? <laughs> not even a pencil. I was just going to say, not even a pencil. Don't even think about it. Certainly not a knife, which there seemed to be a lot of knives in the Taylor Bianca case. <laughs> just around. Just like within arm's reach of the defendants. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. <laughs> the trial also made history as it was the first time a U.S. president testified in a criminal case via video testimony, which I thought was very interesting. That's very interesting, yes. In 1975, she was sentenced to life in prison. Yet there is still more to her story. <laughs> she had been transferred out of her correctional institution in Dublin, California, because she attacked a fellow inmate with a hammer. Why, why does she have a hammer? Is my next question. How did she get that? That's, not, that's also not cool. In 1987, she escaped her correctional institution in West Virginia because she heard Charlie was sick and she had to go see him. After two days, and I believe only two miles from the institution, Squeaky was recaptured and taken to Fort Worth, Texas. Although this escape extended her sentence, she would still be eligible for parole in the future. I just don't understand how you're eligible for parole when you're such a shit human being. I know. I'll get into that. <laughs> but also, I love her logic that she escaped from prison to go to another prison to see Manson. Yeah. How do you think that's going to work? <laughs> like They're just going to let you walk right in there. Mm -hmm. They have no screening at all. You in the orange jumpsuit. Yeah, we'll just let you in. <laughs> yep. I have more to wrap up about Squeaky's case, but I will talk about that towards the end. Yes. And this, this part, I just labeled other crazy shit. <laughs> yeah. You know, like my other ones are like, where are they now? other motives. No, this is just other crazy shit. <laughs> Prior to being arrested for the Tate LaBianca murders, Charlie had bragged to Juan Flynn that they had actually been responsible for 35 murders. And now, after hearing all of those, it sounds entirely possible. Definitely. <laughs> so that basically concludes my not-so-little section of murders related to the Manson family. And next, I'm going to talk about this other random crazy shit that I thought was interesting. Uh, this one, it actually kind of makes me sad, but on September 26, 1970, a fire was raging through Southern California in incinerated Spawn's Ranch. And I mean, obviously the place had bad juju, but I just really wanted to visit it someday. <laughs> Not gonna lie. You know, I'm actually pretty happy that it burnt because <laughs> if you did visit it, you would probably get some sort of like... <laughs> super crabs or something just from walking in the door <laughs> true i mean i would only visit it if it was like uninhabited you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah with no 
no family members remaining, obviously. I just want to be the only person no. there. <laughs> Maybe somebody else, I mean, so then like, I wouldn't get scared. But <laughs> I'm sure syphilis lives in the walls. So like <laughs> it would just seep into your pores. <laughs> just like get into your pores. <laughs> Seriously. That's a good point. But I just thought it'd be so interesting. It'd be like a dark tourism place, you know what I mean? Oh, totally. hundred mm-hmm. percent. But while a 60-foot wall of flames was moving towards the area, the ranch hands were obviously being good humans and trying to save the horses, but the family instead danced around and clapped their hands, exclaiming, Helter Skelter is coming down. Helter Skelter is coming down. Like, could you imagine how eerie of a sight that would be? Like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. <laughs> like, Bye. Okay. Yep. This is apocalyptic. <laughs> yeah. <I'm half. laughs> Get the horses and let's go. Yes. George Spawn passed away September 27, 1974, and the ranch land is now part of California's Santa Susana Pass State Historic Park, and there are several hiking trails in the area. And I mean, I like hiking, so like, <laughs> road trip, anyone? Yeah, maybe now that it's all burnt. And- yeah. yeah, I think it would be pretty well safe. It's like nature's cleansing. It's true. <laughs> it is so true. Nature's like, we got to take care of that. It's a problem. <laughs> that problem area. Let's just. It is a blemish on this earth. <laughs> on January 25th, 1971, the day the jury reached a verdict in the criminal trial, the Hall of Justice was transformed into a fortress. A secret court order was sent out indicating that there had been reports that there might be a possible attempt to disrupt the proceedings which was being called Judgment Day, and therefore extensive security measures were being implemented. The entire building was sealed and anyone who entered would be searched. Vincent Bugliosi was assigned three bodyguards that day. The reason for all of this was because a source close to the family informed the LASO that one of its members had stolen a case of hand grenades from a Marine base and they were going to smuggle them into the courtroom. While it all sounds like a fanatical story, a family member had been working at the Camp Pendleton Marine Base prior to this, and after they quit, a case of grenades had been missing. Fortunately, the family's plans for Judgment Day were obviously not successful. What really bothered me was, what happened to the case of hand grenades? <laughs> True! Like, where are they now? Me. Where did, like, are they just, like, out there? I don't know. If they were at Spawn's Ranch, they probably blew up. <laughs> they probably blew up. That's a good call. Yeah. Oh, that'd be terrifying. Next up, another natural disaster. On February 9th, 1971, a huge earthquake shook most of Southern California. It measured at a 6.5 on the Richter scale, and it claimed 65 lives. Vincent Bugliosi woke up and was convinced that it was the family trying to break into his house. Of course, the family outside the courtroom were spreading the word to reporters that Charlie was responsible for the earthquake. Poor Vincent. Like, he's just like, can't get a break. No. Wakes up to an earthquake and he's like, well, they're here. They're coming to get me. Like, I had a good run. Yeah. The little sleep that he got, he was like constantly thinking like, well, tonight's the night. (laughs) Right? Do I get to wake up and have coffee in the morning? We will find out. So those were just some weird, random things that I found interesting while researching. And now I'm going to jump a little bit into conspiracy theories. And I'm not going to lie, 
I didn't have a lot of time to prepare this section, so it's a little bit incomplete, and I might just be winging some of it. <laughs> just saying. Bring it. It's all good. <laughs> it was during the penalty trial when a slew of family members took the stand and started sharing their own theories. It started with Squeaky, then Brenda McCann, then Sandra Good. They were all antagonistic towards their real families, but ensured that Charles Manson and their new family were all good people. When Gypsy took the stand, she dropped the bombshell that Linda Kasabian was the mastermind behind the Tate LaBianca murders. This happened after Bobby- Linda, who was so <laughs> traumatized. Right? Had only been there for a month and was like, what the hell is happening? Yeah. And she was there because she had the driver's license. Like. Exactly. Totally. She planned it all. This happened after Bobby Beausoleil, who Linda loved, was arrested for the Hinman murder. She instructed the girls to go out and create copycat murders in order to convince authorities that Bobby was innocent since he was behind bars while the other murders took place. Other family members went along with this theory as well, but it clearly was not rehearsed ahead of time whatsoever, so it quickly fell apart. <laughs> Clem, being the shit disturber that he was, offered the strangest theory of them all. He claimed that the real leader of the family was Pooh Bear. Pooh Bear was the son of Charles Manson and Mary oh, Bruner. Mm -hmm. So that was helpful. I guess we know why his nickname was Scramblehead. Yeah. <laughs> Leslie Van Houten claimed that she wasn't influenced by Charlie. She was influenced by the Vietnam War and television. Nice try, Leslie. <laughs> oh, Leslie. One theory, however, is actually quite interesting, and that comes from John Douglas, of course, the author of Mindhunter, yeah. who we love. However, I, I don't know about this theory, and I'm just going to say I'm completely winging this. I have nothing written down, but basically, John Douglas had interviewed Charles Manson. I recall from Mindhunter that he made a point that anytime he, whenever Charles Manson was interviewed, he would always put himself higher than the interviewers, which was what he always did with the right. family, right? So he would, instead of sitting on a chair, he would sit on top of the back of the chair to be over top of them and to kind of assert dominance. So it was very interesting. I mean, obviously we've said it before, go read Mindhunter because it's fascinating. However, John Douglas doesn't think that Charles Manson was the mastermind that he actually was. John Douglas believes that it was actually Charles Tex Watson that orchestrated it all and he wanted to take control of the family so he was the one that actually led it he went out and um, committed the tate murders but then upon returning charles manson didn't want everybody else to think that he was weak in losing control so then he took on the responsibility for it and said he was the one that planned it all and that's why he went out the second night to um direct them for the LaBianca murders because they didn't do it right the first time. So that's the John Douglas theory. But honestly, I don't know. I don't know. John Douglas, we love you, but we disagree. I think this is the first time I have disagreed with John Douglas. But given how much research that I've done in like reading Helter Skelter and how Vincent Bugliosi, like he noted every single evidence of Manson's control. Like literally every single word that was spoken about it, it is written in that book. Like he has so much evidence against him and like evidence for the motive. 
and his control and all of it that I just, it, it's not that simple. I, I definitely think that Tex was a psychopath. Mm -hmm. He was maybe acting a bit on his own with mm -hmm. how he directed the Tate, um, Tate murders to happen. But For sure. I do believe he was led by Manson. I, yeah, hundred percent. I think so. Mm -hmm. He was given the order from Manson once he was out of, you know, Manson's direct control. He took it upon himself to conduct the murders and kind of conduct the other Manson girls there as well, because he was given that leadership position from Manson. But without Manson's order, right. I don't think that would have happened. No. So hopefully <laughs> that made sense. <laughs> yeah, it was fine. Just just a little bop on my microphone because, you know, talking just with my bit, hands, just a little bit. But yeah, that's what I understand as the John Douglas theory. So I'm curious, everybody else, if you can let us know what you think. And if you think that that theory holds any merit, I'd be really interested to know your thoughts about that. And we love a healthy debate. So yeah. But regardless of what happened and why, many of the Manson family members have been locked up for these crimes and many had received the death penalty verdict. Like I mentioned at the very beginning of the episode, it was expected that the appeals in the retrials were going to take two to five years, but instead it took only less than one for the Tate-LaBianca murders. On February 18, 1972, the California Supreme Court announced that they voted to abolish the death penalty in the state of California. This was based on the state constitution which forbids cruel and unusual punishment. At the time, there were 107 inmates waiting for execution on death row. All of their sentences were automatically reduced to life in prison. However, any person sentenced to life imprisonment in California is eligible for parole in only seven years. Seven Bullshit. I, years. I don't care. If you were on death row, you should never be eligible for parole. 100%. Even life imprisonment should like not be seven years. If your initial sentence was to die mm -hmm. in prison, mm -hmm. you should stay in prison until you die. Exactly. 100%. This bothers me. <laughs> I know. It bothers me too. <laughs> we will find out shortly if any of them did indeed get paroled. But first, I just want to briefly wrap up the aftermath of the Manson family tirade. Their reign of terror had largely been blamed for the end of an era that was filled with free love and free thinking. It only took two nights of brutality to change the world and make people question their sanity and their safety. People would no longer be opening their doors and their hearts for others like they had done in the past. Some even said that the 60s came to an abrupt end on August 9th, 1969. And I just think that it sums it up well. And it's kind of poetic. It's just like... Mm -hmm. yeah age of sex and free love and you know died it died with Sharon Tate absolutely and it died because of people that were trying to live by free love and everything like that at least that's what they proclaimed and they went out and did this and <laughs> it just put an end to all of it yeah crazy so now it's been more than 50 years since the Tate-LaBianca murders, so let's find out where the family is now. Lynette Frommy. We already talked about her extensively, so what is she up to nowadays? She's out! She's out living her life! 
Isn't isn't that terrifying? After being paroled in 2009, she moved to New York City with her boyfriend, who was a fellow convict slash Manson fanatic, and started writing to Squeaky while they were both in prison. She is possibly one of the only true devoted family members remaining and claims to still be in love with Charles Manson. Although she may not be a good person, she certainly is oil. Yeah. Bobby Beausoleil. While in prison, Bobby became affiliated with the Aryan Brotherhood, which resulted in him getting his jaw broken over a power struggle. To which I say, good. Yeah. (laughs) It is also reported that he has been stabbed a few times by other inmates, and because of this, he started to distance himself from the family. He has also been married a few times, although his last wife passed away in 2015. He was recommended for parole in April of 2019, but the governor reversed this recommendation as he felt that Beausoleil's release could still pose a danger to society. Yeah, no shit. Mm -hmm. Steve Clem Grogan, however, was granted parole back in 1985. I couldn't find much more about it other than he's still alive and out somewhere. Fantastic. Love that. Linda Kasabian. After the trial, it's not surprising that she would be a huge target for the family. She was watched by the Secret Service for a while, and she moved away with her husband and children to live a quiet life. Unfortunately, she was in a car accident, and she was left partially disabled. During a Larry King interview, she was asked about the degree of remorse she felt for her participation in the crimes. She responded that she felt as though she took on all the guilt that, quote, no one else who was involved in the crimes felt guilt for. So I feel bad for Linda. She's taken on all the guilt because nobody else wants to be responsible. And everyone else is shit human beings that don't have any remorse. Exactly. Patricia Krenwinkel. At the beginning of her life in prison, Krenwinkel remained loyal to Manson and the family, but over time began to break away from them. She has maintained a perfect prison record, and received a bachelor's degree in human services. She is also active in programs such as Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, and she also taught illiterate prisoners how to read. Apparently, she writes both poetry and music, plays the guitar, plays on a prison volleyball team, and gives dance lessons. Krenwinkel has been denied parole 14 times, but will be eligible again in 2022. She's the longest incarcerated female inmate in the California penal system. Way to go, Big Patty. Yeah. I mean, I'm all for, you know, she's being reformed, which is fantastic. Do I think she should be out and about? No, absolutely not. She should still be locked up, but I'm glad she's doing well. And I'm glad she, you know, turned her life around. Mm -hmm. Susan Atkins. Crazy Sadie. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Crazy Sadie said she was a born-again Christian after seeing a, a vision of Jesus Christ in her cell. Question, was that Jesus Christ or was it a Charles Manson? I want to know. What did she see? She did not specify. <laughs> After that, she became active in prison programs and began teaching classes. She was married twice while in prison. She was denied parole 13 times. However, she became very sick and was given less than six months to live, so compassionate release was requested. Atkins' condition had deteriorated to the point that she was paralyzed on one side, could talk only a little bit, and could not sit up in bed without assistance. 
In April 2008, it was revealed that Susan had been hospitalized for more than a month and that she had terminal brain cancer. One leg had been amputated as well. Susan Atkins died on September 24, 2009 at the Central California's Women's Facility. So she died in prison. Mm-hmm. Good riddance. Just saying. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Leslie Van Houten. You guys already know what's up with Leslie. She did not get out in seven years like she thought she would. She was granted a retrial in 1977, however, due to the failure to declare a mistrial when her lawyer died, which makes a lot of sense, actually. You know, it really does. Yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like they really just skimmed over that fact. Again, saying. There was a second retrial after the jury could not agree on a verdict, but at this one, she was again convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. She was denied parole on July of 2020, as she currently possesses an unreasonable danger to society if released from prison. Yes, she was. Yeah, because we already know. We covered that on the morning news. <laughs> yeah. Charles Tex Watson converted to Christianity in 1975. In 1979, he got married, and over the next few years, they were able to have four children together through conjugal visits. Those types of visits were later banned for prisoners serving life sentences. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Why didn't you do that sooner? Man. Crazy. Times? Yeah. I mean, must have been many more than four times because it's, it's not likely that they were like, okay, <laughs> we're timing this just right. All right. Today is yeah. today. Today. Is conjugal visit. Yep. <laughs> After 24 years of marriage, his wife divorced him. Later, he became an ordained minister in 1981 and received a Bachelor of Science in Business Management in 2009. Which wow. was very unexpected for Tex. I did not think he was the, the school type. No. He has been denied parole 17 times and remains incarcerated. But wait, there's more. And this gets crazy. Tex Watson befriended the daughter of Rosemary LaBianca, who, reminder, he helped stab a total of 41 times. Like, he brutally murdered this person's mother. Like, yeah. What? We already know Rosemary's daughter, Susan, from throughout the case, but I don't think anybody could have predicted that. She has since become one of Watson's closest friends behind bars after allegedly bonding over shared beliefs as born-again Christians. She visits, writes, and has even advocated for his release. And it keeps going. In 1990, Sharon Tate's sister, Patty Tate, met Susan at a middle school where both of their daughters went. When they discovered their bizarre connection, they right away felt comfortable with each other and Patty let her daughter stay over at Susan's house. Yeah. Wow, I, I hadn't ever heard that. Yep. And this was all a plan to befriend Patty to get her on Tex's side as well. Patty discovered that Susan had been corresponding with her sister's killer and rushed over to Susan's to collect her daughter. She was horrified. No kidding. It is thought that Susan may have even intentionally put her daughter in the same school as Patty's in order to make this happen. What the fuck? Right? 
I mean, trauma does weird shit to you, but come on. This, this is crossing a line. Yeah. <laughs> now people are speculating that the LaBiancas were not randomly selected after all. Susan and Tex lived only 200 feet apart in nearby apartments in Los Angeles for six months before Watson moved to Spawn's ranch. Susan's then-boyfriend was a member of the motorcycle gang, the Straight Satans, which often frequented Spawn's ranch. So perhaps there's a connection, perhaps it's coincidence. I don't know about that, but there is just one more thing. If you recall on our Morning News episode, uh, Morning News 10, episode 38, we discussed the case where Rosemary LaBianca's granddaughter was brutally murdered in a similar manner. That was Ariana Jean Wolk, whose mother was Susan. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and although her murder does not seem to be related to the Manson family whatsoever, it is just so incredibly bizarre. No kidding. Just, it's, it's a hard one to wrap your head around. 100%. There is so much happening there. I just, I can't even. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Charles Manson was placed into a maximum security prison, which was described as a prison within a prison. While there, he was so hostile and belligerent that not only did he lose special privileges, but he also lost nor sorry, I'm hitting things again. <laughs> he also lost normal inmate privileges. <laughs> While in prison, Manson turned the X that he carved into his forehead into a swastika. Keeping it classy. Mm -hmm. Like always. Like always. He was mostly kept away from other prisoners as it was no secret that they would be out to get him. But at one point, a fellow inmate poured paint thinner over him and set him on fire. Why didn't I know about this? <laughs> yeah, I hadn't heard this. This caused second and third degree burns over 20% of his body. After that, he was put into protective housing, yet somehow he still managed to traffic drugs while in there. <laughs> he also apparently recorded an album, although only a few copies were made and it has never been released. At the age of 80, Charlie started something. It's true. I mean, you got to be like entertained, but I think it's funny that he's like, he lost special privileges and normal inmate privileges, but you want to record an album? We'll hook you up. You go nuts, Charles. Yeah. <laughs> At the age of 80, Charlie started a new relationship with a 17-year-old. Gross. Yeah. Afton Elaine Burton, nicknamed Star by Charlie, made the first contact in 2007. Star moved from Illinois to California to be near him. She originally became interested in him because of his views on the environment. Sure you did. Mm-hmm. They began a relationship, and she would handle all the gifts and money sent to Manson. She also managed the website MansonDirect.com and updated his fans on what he was doing and how he was doing. They were going to get married and even acquired a marriage certificate. However, it would later expire in February 2015 as Manson got word of Star's true intentions. This is crazy. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know you're waiting for this. Well, and you know it's good because my husband is not a true crime person at all, but mm -hmm. he is like, you are talking about Manson. You need to talk about this crazy chick. Yes, 100%. So this, is, this section is dedicated to Des. <laughs> Shout out to Des. Yeah. So apparently she had plans to secure the right to Manson's remains after he died. 
her and her friend Craig Hammond had apparently got the idea that they would put his corpse on display in a glass box and charge people to look at it. Starr denied this and claimed the marriage didn't happen for logistical reasons. Uh Mm -hmm. Regardless, when Charles Manson died on November 19th, 2017, she did not get the rights to his remains. I read that Charlie had testicular cancer, but somewhere else I read that he had colon cancer, so I'm not exactly sure which one it was. Either or, they both are awful and (laughs) well-deserved. But he eventually died from cardiac arrest, resulting from respiratory failure and the cancer. Yes. But like, we were just talking about dark tourism. That's just, that's That's a whole nother level. (laughs) It is next level. I don't even think you can call that tourism of any kind. (laughs) I don't know what you would call that. Oh, that's just like fucked right up. (laughs) Exactly. Just like, hey, this is fucked up. Do you want to pay to see it? (laughs) I I picture him in like a glass like coffin, like Snow White. Mm. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I always pictured him standing up, which doesn't make sense. I realize that, but that's just like Like the image. Yeah, exactly. So. I don't know. (laughs) No, I definitely pictured him like Snow White. (laughs) Wow. That sounds elegant. (laughs) I know. You know, like people flocked around a glass coffin just like checking out Charles. It certainly makes more sense than what's happening in my head. (laughs) Well, at least then the smell would be contained. Yes. At least there's a box. That is. Yeah. That's good. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) All right. And to end my incredibly long series about the Manson family murders, I wanted to put the focus back on the victims. This case is intense and complicated and fascinating, and sometimes it's hard to remember that this is real life, and real people lost their lives. And I am guilty of it too, clearly. Like, I was deep in that rabbit hole. Yes, we both were. (laughs) Yes. But let's remember the victims here. Gary Hinman was a 34-year-old musician. He studied at the University of California in Los Angeles, graduating with a degree in chemistry, and continued his education by pursuing a PhD in sociology. His friends remembered him as a kind-hearted man. After purchasing a home in Topanga Canyon, California, Hinman had an open-door policy. Any friends who found themselves in a transient state would be welcome into his home to stay for however long they needed. During the summer of 1969, Hinman became involved in Buddhism and even began planning a pilgrimage to Japan to fulfill his new faith. Diane Lake spoke very kindly of Gary in her book, and you could tell that he was just incredibly sincere and just a nice guy. Oh, I love that. Mm -hmm. Donald Shorty Shea, 36, moved to California to pursue his career in acting, but mostly worked at Spawn Ranch, where most considered him to be the foreman. Shea was a former stuntman whose dream was to pursue a film career in Hollywood, a dream which, according to many, he never gave up. John Zero Hot, 22, was born in Missouri. Not a lot is known about him, but before moving to California, he grew up in Ohio and was a U.S. Navy veteran who spent time in Vietnam. Lino LaBianca, 44, was born in Los Angeles. His father was the founder of the State Wholesale Grocery Company, and after attending the University of Southern California, Lino went into the family business. Later on, he became president of Gateway Markets, a Southern California chain. 
He had also served overseas in World War II. He got married and had three children, but later they divorced. Lido married Rosemary in Las Vegas in 1959 or 1960. Rosemary LaBianca, 38, was believed to be born in Mexico and lived in an orphanage in Arizona until she was 12. She was then adopted by a California couple. Like Lino, Rosemary married and had children, but she too got divorced. After marrying Lino, she became a successful businesswoman. She had her own boutique and had also invested in stocks and commodities. The two often spent time with each other's children, who by the time of the murders were teenagers and young adults. Stephen Earl Parent, 18, was known as a radio bug, and many held great hopes for his future. His sister Janet explained Stephen was fascinated by electronics and mechanics. He would bring home stereos and tear them apart so he could get a better understanding on how they worked. In June of 1969, Stephen graduated from high school and planned to attend college the following September. Parent spent most of his time working and saving money for school. He had two jobs. During the day, he worked as a full-time delivery boy, and in the evenings, Parent worked as a salesman at a radio shop. It's just so sad because he was there. I know. He was trying to sell a radio. It just breaks my heart. It's tragic. Abigail Folger, 25, was, of course, the heiress to the Folger Coffee Fortune. She had previously worked for an art museum, a New York bookstore, and became involved with social work in the ghettos. She had always had an interest for art, books, and poetry. When she had time to do so, she would paint and write poetry. She was also a very talented pianist. She was in a relationship with Wojciech Frykowski. Wojciech Frykowski, 32, was born in Poland and became friends with Roman Polanski. He was an inspiring writer, and despite not being a filmmaker himself, Frykowski gravitated towards Polanski's community of student filmmakers. He went on to earn a degree in chemistry, but found himself struck by the cinema bug and wanted to become more involved with film projects. He spent some time in Paris to become an actor, but never landed any roles, so he decided to move to America to reconnect with his old friend Polanski. He then met Abigail, and they moved into the Tate-Polanski house together. And what are the chances that your old friend from Poland that you grew up with, you happen to reconnect all the way in America, and that is the house that you move into? Like, and then you die in? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, not that you could see it coming, but bad choice. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No, it's entirely not his fault at all. <laughs> no. Jay Sebring, 35, was born in Michigan as Thomas John Humer, but changed his name after moving to Hollywood. He had a four-year stint as a Navy barber and fought in the Korean War. He later moved to Los Angeles and became a celebrity hairstylist. In 1967, he opened the company Sebring International to franchise his salons and sell hair products. His friend Sharon Tate described his nature as incredibly gentle. Sharon Tate Polanski, 26, was born in Dallas, Texas. She was incredibly beautiful and started out in pageants and then went on to model and act. She would take singing, dancing, and acting classes and would get a few parts here and there. She certainly looked like a star, but unfortunately was never able to reach her full potential. She met Roman Polanski in the summer of 1966, and they got married in January 1968. Once she got pregnant, it became her whole life, and she was oblivious to everything else. Her husband later described her as beautiful without the phoniness. She was fantastic. She was an angel. She was a unique character who he will never meet again in his life. 
Ugh, right in the field. Mm-hmm. And their baby was a boy, wasn't it? I don't know. I don't Are know. Sure about that that their baby was a boy, and um, they named him Roman Junior. Oh, ow, my heart. I know. That's so sad. Don't fact check me on that one, but I'm sure I read, <laughs> read that somewhere. Just you know what? We don't want to be fact checked. <laughs> no, kidding. It's all good. Um, yeah, that concludes my coverage of the Manson family murders. I wish I had some sort of sound effect, like I know, like. Do I bow? Button? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Well done. Um, while listening to this, you're welcome to <laughs> applaud for me or go woohoo or yeah. send me a message <laughs> if you liked it. That is, <laughs> maybe I didn't do a good job and I don't deserve any of that. I don't know. <laughs> I think you did fantastic. Oh well, thank you very much. Uh, that was a very big undertaking, but it was very fun. And I thought I I knew a lot about the Manson family murders beforehand, but now I'm just like. I know all the you know things. All. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I know a lot. <laughs> I listen to other podcasts and I'm like, I know more than you because <laughs> I'm an I asshole. Did after, I did that after BTK. Honestly, mm-hmm. I listened to, re-listened to someone's that I previously listened to about him and I was like, oh, but you're wrong. Yes. Oh, but actually. <laughs> I just lived in that rabbit hole for yes. a good six weeks. So, so I know. <laughs> so my references for this episode of course helter skelter by vincent bugliosi and kurt gentry member of the family by diane lake wikipedia listfirst.com allthatsinteresting.com gangsterreport.com which sounds sketchy but they gave a beautiful timeline of all of the murders like in order and with their information checked out so good job and uh new york post awesome Mm-hmm. okay any other Manson-related things that you need to get off your chest before we move on? <laughs> no, I think you covered them all. Okay, sounds good. We will, of course, still have our book club episode on Helter Skelter. So any final thoughts we will have there. And make sure if you've read the book, send us your thoughts. Please, we would love some listener participation. Yes. So, you ready for some fluff and stuff? I am so ready for some fluff and stuff (laughs) perfect this you know what i have not even thought about my response but that's okay (laughs) if you had to sing karaoke if you were forced to what song would you choose call me by blondie oh wow i love that (laughs) uh it was my jam when uh we used to play rock band i love that like in my early 20s that's beautiful call call me would come on and it's my jam Mm -hmm. but uh actually currently um if i had to choose a song that i just recently found it would be here's to us by hailstorm because it's awesome oh wow and look at you i am obsessed (laughs) with it and so it's awesome but yes call me it's my jam i love that (laughs) that's excellent (laughs) i would love to say bohemian rhapsody but i I've had that dream. It doesn't go well, but in my head, I'd, I'd be confident until I got on the stage and then I'd go, this is a mistake. Um, but that's not what I would choose. Life. <laughs> I would need a partner for sure. I'll back you up. Thank you. Thank you. Um, no, just off the top of my head, what I would choose, I don't even know if this is the actual name of the song, but um, Big Balls by ACDC. I don't know nice. if you know that song, 
but it's uh, it's a song that I can definitely sing all the words and just really get into. Beautiful. <laughs> I kind of actually thought you were going to be like the Bad Touch by Bloodhound Gang. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! This changes everything. <laughs> I guess it depends I, on the venue. <laughs> and I could also do that one. <laughs> yes. Yep. Either one. I would take either of those. I would be good with, and I'm not a singer. I do not sing in front of people, but like if I was forced to, it would be one of those songs. Yeah. Yeah. Truth be told, um, I've never sang karaoke Mm -hmm. publicly, anything, but I would love to. I think it would be so much fun. (laughs) Interesting. Um, I was forced to, which is actually kind of funny because I was jokingly saying like, if you were forced to sing karaoke, like in what situation would that happen? Like that that has happened to me um, because when you play college sports, then when you're a rookie, you're forced to do things that you don't want to do. So I was forced to sing Barbie girl in front of like many, many college students. Okay. So Des, Des, <laughs> you know, my husband, yes, he, uh, he went on a work trip a few years ago. They went to Austin, Texas. Mm. And one of the things that they did was sing karaoke and I found out after he got home from Austin that he sang Barbie Girl wow. with his co-worker. Wow. I was like, I'm sorry, what? Is there video? <laughs> you did. And he's like, no. Hmm. There's no video footage of Des singing Barbie Girl or I would post it on our freaking <laughs> Instagram. <laughs> oh man, that's <laughs> disappointing because I would love to see that. <laughs> I know. And his coworker that forced him to sing Barbie girl with her. She's fantastic and is one of my favorite people. And I'm still <laughs> supremely jealous that she's witnessed it and I didn't. Yeah, no kidding. How can we arrange this to happen again? <laughs> right. uh, I, I love that. You have to be in like Austin, Texas with the right amount of whiskey. <laughs> That's true. Like, yeah. It is yeah. such a specific formula. <laughs> it is very specific. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Well, make sure to answer our question as well. If you were forced to sing karaoke, or if you are a karaoke fanatic, what song is your, you know, belted out ballad? Mm -hmm. Let us know. We want to know. And obviously let us know what you think about the episode. You can email us at murderandmerlot at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at Podcast, Facebook at Podcast, and Twitter at murderandmerlot1. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. We would love if you subscribed, and if you don't, you're dead to me. And remember, our next book that we are reading is Small Sacrifices by Anne Rule. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, I've started the book now. It is so good. Nice. So, so good. I just love Anne Rule, but man, this story Mm -hmm. is going to be a bit of a trip. Yep. So. <laughs> Good luck with that one. Yeah, You're doing the writing here. All the wild rides. Yep, exactly. Um, yeah, so pretty brutal content, but interesting story, great writing. Like I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. I was horrified in the first chapter and I knew I was going to be, but mm-hmm. yeah. As I keep going forward, I'm just shocked and amazed mm-hmm. by how well written this book is. So Oh, that's fantastic. I can't wait to dive in. Yeah, it's good. All right, guys, remember to drink wine because it's not good to keep things bottled up. Bye.